0: Welcome to The Feather Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Welcome to The Feather Desert. This episode is going to be all about technology. We actually came across this really interesting article in the latest uh, Audubon magazine that came out. And we thought, oh, why don't we talk about conservation technology? Technology is something that we all have in our lives, like too much in our lives, I think sometimes. (laughs) But a lot of this new technology is helping scientists with different conservation projects. And we found some um, involving birds as well as other animals. And we're going to talk to you all about that today. So I'm going to start it off and we're going to go kind of old school with some of this technology. And we're going to look at cameras which include camera traps, thermal imaging, and video cameras. So camera traps, for those of you who don't know what a camera trap is, are remote cameras that take photos when a sensor is triggered by movement. Generally, you'll see these things strapped to a tree in the forest. If you're out hiking or walking around or if we have hunters listening, then you see those there and you're like, oh, what is that? And maybe you'll wave at it and they'll get a little picture of you <laughs> waving at the camera. <laughs> um, scientists actually often put them in remote nature preserves in hopes of catching secretive animals on camera. So early camera traps that were used back in the 70s and 80s Um, actually stored the photos internally which then had to be downloaded by direct interaction with the camera more modern ones actually send the image via wi-fi to an account and there are some now even today that send data in real time directly to the operator so an example of using camera traps to help us find a secretive animal is actually the sira curacao so, for those of you who don't know what a Curacao is, it's a turkey like bird with black feathers, long legs, and a small blue cask on its head. The Sierra Curacao is only found in the Sierra Communal Reserve in the high altitudes of the Andes Mountains. With approximately 400 individuals left, that's not a lot. No. Um, assessing their population numbers is extremely important. So, scientists. Who don't want to walk around the high altitudes of the Andes
1: Mountains? I don't blame them. (laughs) With
0: (laughs) With binoculars and a big warm coat, and sitting up there and living up there for however long, they put camera traps around, and the camera tracks actually did work. They were actually able to catch a few of the individuals, and uh, it helped them with population numbers. It also the other thing that camera traps do and did in this situation is it showed them what places in the reserve they were actually using. So this one was definitely a great one for that Sierra Curacao. And if you guys wanna see a real live example of the Curacao, you can visit our local zoo. They actually do have Curacao's there on uh, their South America trail. Not the same one, but similar. It'll give you an idea of what they look like. So the other thing you know, under cameras is thermal imaging now i like to just play with thermal imaging because it's fun (laughs) (laughs) but scientists can actually use that because studying species in the dark can be very complicated so what thermal imaging sensors can do is help them study nocturnal creatures or to help study activities in dark places so the technology which is also called infrared thermography senses slight differences in energy and presents them as a range of colors in a photograph called a thermograph. The higher the temperature, the brighter the image. So those of you who watch like ghost hunters, that's what you're thinking of (laughs) right now. That's essentially what we're talking about is the things that you see where it looks like bright, bright, bright white Uh or bright yellow. That's a hot spot. So that's what we would be seeing with this. So a great example of this is actually... Uh, studying bats. So in our fight against white nose syndrome, which is a disease that is affecting our insectivorous bats in the U.S., scientists really wanted to know what was going on and how we might help them. So we employed thermal imaging to see how the bats infected with this fungus behaved during hibernation. And that was incredibly important to diagnosing what was going on in our understanding of white nose syndrome, because what white nose syndrome does essentially is, it's a fungus that gets on the bat. This fungus gets, disturbs them is what it does. It gets on them and it grows around their nose. That's why it's called white nose syndrome. And it disturbs them during hibernation and it wakes them up. And the reason this is a problem is during those hibernation times, it's winter. And when they wake up, they don't have the food stores and the water stores, those keep getting interrupted. So right before they go into hibernation, they're gorging themselves on bugs, they're drinking water, and then they go in to hibernate, and that's gonna keep them for a while. But then when this what this white nose syndrome does is it bothers them, it's like this horrible itch that they can't stop and it makes them wake up. So essentially what it's doing is dehydrating them because they're waking up too often and they're eating up all their stores of fat and water. So with this thermal imaging we were able to understand how this works which was incredibly important on uh determining a plan on how we're going to hopefully help our bats survive white nose syndrome so in our third one is video cameras video cameras have been around for a long time we're not using those big giant ones that they had back in the 80s that are like weightlifter type (laughs) cameras but what was really cool about this one I found a great example of what some hummingbird researchers are doing with video cameras and they wanted to determine what types of flowers hummingbirds are frequenting what times of the year all that kind of stuff so what they did was they actually took the sensor and took it away from the video camera. So they took them apart. They took the sensor off of the video camera, that sensor that triggers it to make it work. And they put it like a little farther out where the hummingbird might fly by it. So it flies by the sensor first and that triggers the camera to go on. And the camera goes on just as the hummingbird's coming into the flower. Since the hummingbirds move so fast, they were trying to do it the other way with the sensor still attached to the camera and they were missing everything. So the camera would trigger as soon as the hummingbird came by, but it was it was too late. Yeah. So somebody had the brilliant idea, let's separate the sensor from the camera and then it triggers as the bird flies by and then as it flies into the flower and is eating, we're actually getting video of the hummingbird eating from the flower.
1: That is cool. Very, <clears throat> very
0: cool. So those are three interesting kind of old school technologies that we're still using and we've got more to talk about so Cheryl's going to tell us about an interesting one as well
1: so bioacoustic devices how'd they do perfect these devices <laughs> record the sounds of the environment they are typically passive devices that are automated and scientists use them to detect animal activity in areas based on calls or songs the males the animals make so for an example researchers in mexico were able to detect the decline of the va- vaquita yes i practiced that good job <laughs> a small porpoise that lives in the gulf of california through a through bioacoustics devices the recorded vaquita calls they recorded the vaquita calls a conservation plan could then be developed because it helped them figure out how many were there because yes. there aren't very many no there's like less than 30.
0: yeah
1: and so they I noticed
0: could... yep and that's what these bioacoustic devices did they started noticing that hmm that doesn't sound as many as there used to be yeah
1: yeah i thought it was pretty cool it is cool and i hope they can do something but i don't know we'll, we'll just have to wait and the see a little porpoise yeah. yeah
0: it's quite a cute little porpoise definitely look up the vaquita all right. So all right, our Kirsten. yes, our third one is one that really strikes fear into the hearts of some people, but it's the unmanned aerial vehicle, also known as drones. Ugh. I know that's kind of <laughs> how I feel too. It neck
1: does. stand up.
0: But scientists are actually using drones all around the world to study almost everything. So they're actually especially helpful in studying large parcels of land where animals of interest might be found. Uh, walking these areas would just take ta- countless hours or days, man hours, out of control. It, they'd never get anything done. But using the drone cuts down on this time immensely. So I have to give the drone just a little bit here. I got I to gotta like it a little. So, for example, in Minnesota, American black ducks are actually being located with drones. This is apparently a very secretive huh. duck. Who I didn't knew? know this. Yeah. But they're, and they're extremely hard to find on foot, So when they make their nests, I guess they don't disturb anything where you can see it on the ground. But from above, you can see them and you're like, hello, duck. And so that's what they're actually doing. And it seems to be working. It's also less invasive to the ducks than people walking around. You're slogging around out there. And if it's hard to see, you might stumble right across their nest. So the drones are actually helping them locate the black ducks, who are a bird of concern, and we also want to know what types of environment they're using as well. Another example that I just have to talk about because I found it absolutely fascinating, and it is about one of my very favorite birds in the entire world, and that is the kakapo from New Zealand. Now, before you say, bless you, I did not sneeze. (laughs) Kakapo is a native non-flighted parrot that is found in New Zealand and it's highly endangered. There were in 2017, only 147 of these individuals. And now in 2021, because of what they're using this drone for, we're up to 201 individuals. Yes, yes. that's exciting actually. It is very, it's very cool, exciting. It's a cool bird. It's a very cool bird. This is actually a five pound parrot that is unable that to fly. That walks on the ground. That walks on the ground. <laughs> now you're saying five pounds, that's not much. Think about this. A female bald eagle can weigh eight pounds. So now we have a parrot that weighs almost as much as a female bald eagle. That's a big, heavy parrot. That doesn't fly. That does not fly. And they don't fly because they, in New Zealand, as they were evolving there in that uh, on that continent at that time, there weren't any ground predators that would harm them. So instead of competing with the other parrots that are flying around, they're like, eh, let's just be on the ground. And that worked really well for them. But a long time ago, people, once again, we introduced rats. And the rats were just, tore them to pieces. They ate their nests, they ate uh, young, then they started eating adults. So what the scientists actually did was took the kakapo from the mainland of New Zealand and put it onto three islands that are off the coast of New Zealand that have no ground predators and has similar environment that they need to survive so they are doing all right and what the scientists are using the drone for is to ensure diversified genetics by flying sperm from males to throughout the islands to different females to diversify the genetics and help these guys survive i thought that was (laughs) that is beyond amazing yes and
1: such an interesting use of a drone (laughs) and the visual is just the visual (laughs) is is
0: hilarious you're laughing with us right now but they are using the sperm for artificial insemination and that does seem to be working because from 2017 to now we're up almost 60 individuals which is fantastic and I wanted to throw in another little side note about another piece of technology that they're using for the kakapo because this one just blew me away as well. And it is a smart egg. I was like, what's a smart egg? And what the egg, smart egg is, is actually made on a 3D printer and there's devices inside it that actually move and make noise. So what it does is it fools the female kakapo into I'm actually sitting on my eggs because scientists are pulling the eggs so that they can raise the young in a lab and give them a heads up on population increase because uh, very high mortality. Kind in, of like with condors. Exactly, just like condors. So they're trying the same things there, but they're using this cool new um, smart egg. And so their hopes that once they are up to a certain number of adult individuals that are surviving is what they want to do is they'll sneak out that egg, with the Um, smart egg in there and the female sit on it and right when that egg is supposed to be hatching they'll be able to slip the baby back in there after they've given them maybe about a week in the lab to to get bigger and stronger and they'll slip it back in there pull the egg out and then the female be like oh i had a baby and then she'll start to feed her baby and so that's what they hope that's they haven't done that yet but they're using the 3d smart eggs Uh, right now, which I thought was just fascinating.
1: That is. It works with condors.
0: It did. We was very successful with condors. And their hope is actually, New Zealand has a plan for 2050 to completely annihilate all of the ground predators that were invasive species that came in. So all of their um, rats that they have, and then some of the non-indigenous snakes that have shown up there. They have a plan to eradicate all them by 2050. And if that does happen, these scientists, if they can get enough of the kakapo individual adults alive they want to reintroduce them to the mainland of new zealand which would be scientifically speaking amazing if that was something that we could do
1: i also know with new zealand i have um a friend who lives there and they have a cat and their cats are allowed outdoors
0: yeah they have really strict they rules have about really that. strict rules so go new zealand yeah go new zealand i'm with that All right, so that's our fascinating use of drones. That
1: is, that's cool.
0: So those of you that are like us and are like drones, poo-poo. We don't like them. They drive us crazy. These are some of the reasons that we might be able to like drones just a little bit.
1: Yeah, I do like the videos of drones when scientists put them um, up of the ocean. Right. Because they're also using it that way, not only to track um, birds, but to s- whales and cattle. Yeah. So I can see that they have a scientific purpose. I just don't need my neighbor hovering over. Exactly. <laughs> having exactly. it's drone hovering over my backyard. Right. All right. Well, Cheryl's going to take us into
0: almost kind of an old school one as well. Um, but this is a real fascinating one also.
1: So radar. Weather radar has been used for years to study migration patterns of birds. Radar is short for Radio Detection and Ranging, and was first developed to detect enemy aircraft in World War II. It was then used to study and predict weather patterns. During the time, engineers and operators noticed dots on their screens that confused them. They called these dots angels. Oh, that's sweet. It is nice. Because they came and went without any apparent reason. Two ornithologists decided, suggested that maybe the dots were birds, and they were right. Thus began the era of radi- radar ornithology. Huh. It's so interesting. That is interesting. <laughs> Birdcast is a group that is utilizing generation next generation radar. Next rad. Huh. Next generation radar. Right. <laughs> to study bird migration. Well, that's just a scientific label I actually get. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We now have the technology to differentiate between birds, bats, and insects. Okay, this is really cool.
0: It really is.
1: <laughs> I, don't even know, I don't even know how they do that, but radar actually helps scientists discover that many species of songbirds might migrate at night that yeah. is really cool i don't know how they differentiate between but i'm glad they can yeah
0: and when i was doing research with us i found that article which i'll post on our show notes and they get a little bit more into it a little bit more of the scientific differences between how they can tell between birds bats and insects and i thought it might be a little too much too much scientists i can hear people falling asleep yeah. <laughs> while we're talking about or you'll it. you'll lose me you'll see that right like, oh, no, look at no, no, my right. eyes look right <laughs> So I'll put it on our show notes and you can always look it up and read the article for yourself, but it's really fascinating that they that they know how to do this. That's crazy. So our last one we're going to talk about is much more advanced, and this is called GIS or geographic information system. This is actually a computer system that analyzes and displays geographically referenced information. Which, once again, you might be going, eh, what does that mean?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you lost me there, Kirsten.
0: (laughs) Right, so what it does is it uses data that is attached to a unique location. So it's kind of like on your phone where your photo gets geotagged, and you take all of that information and you put it into one big database. And then this system, this GIS system, actually can make a map of it. And they usually use it, uh, or originally it was kind of used to follow human activity, and we were able to see where humans were doing and what they were using. But now scientists are using this system to study the movements of animals almost all around the world. Almost every country is using this and any place that certainly American scientists are studying it, they're using GIS to track animal behavior. And by compiling this information, we can learn a lot about their behavior and about the resources that they're using. So this was a great example that I found of this, one, which actually is what inspired us to do the whole podcast. There was an elephant in Africa that had become a nuisance to an elementary school, which first of all blew my mind because I'm like an elementary school, an elephant in elementary school. Well, of course, there's elephants in Africa that totally makes sense. I was just thinking, wow, wow, an elephant at an elementary school. It's amazing. <laughs> Let's go out and see it. And it's of a cool course, school. <laughs> right. And of course, in Africa, elephants are common in certain areas. So they can interact with human beings in an inappropriate way. So when that happens, when something becomes a nuisance, a large elephant, um, the government wildlife service must step in. And regrettably, one of the options to solve the problem is to euthanize the animal, which I was amazed that it was still an actual Consideration. Option, right? A consideration at all, considering they're very endangered. But it's one of the things they have to think about is this elephant going to harm the children? So when they got there, they were able to see the elephant was wearing a tracking collar. So they're like, let's contact these researchers first before we do anything. And the data actually showed that the elephant had visited this site many times. And it turns out that he was eating some of the seed pods from the native trees. And on the school grounds, on the school grounds, yes, close enough to the school that it was able to interact with children. And that was a bad thing. So they also said, well, what can we do about this? And the researchers like, well, let's find out where he is currently. There is a plan that's been used somewhere else that we want to try with them. So they actually implemented this plan to keep the elephant from coming back to the school. And if it worked, they'd save the elephant's life. And it did work. So what they did was they immobilized the elephant the next time it came close to the school. Then they rubbed hot pepper oil all over its trunk and then moved it a safe distance from the school to wake up. When it woke up, it was all like, Ugh, what is this? Oh, this is horrible stuff all over my trunk. It associated that hot oil with the school and the surrounding areas and was like, oh, God, I don't want to ever go there again and get this stuff on me. <laughs> And it has not been back to the school since. That is so cool. Yeah, it's come within a radius of it, but not within 250 miles of the school. Because they're still tracking it. They're still tracking it, right. And this geographic information system, without that, we would not have been able to implement this plan. And now the government wildlife service that is in that area is like, this is awesome. We're like, we want to try this all the time. And so now this is an option to uh, put them under uh, anesthesia, Hot oil them up and then (laughs) let them back
1: out. And it seems to work because elephants have great memory. So it's very, very cool. That is cool. This this is the same system that I saw um, that they're using in the Pacific um, Northwest with the mountain lions.
0: I believe it is the
1: same thing. So they're tracking the mountain lions to see where they need to put in wildlife crossings.
0: Yeah. Because, I mean, this is perfect. It makes a little map yeah. for you of everywhere that you're going. And then it just makes so much more sense for us to put things where animals need them instead of put them where we want them and then make an animal go there.
1: Yeah. That's silly. Well, we can make an animal do it. Exactly. <laughs> do we can't anything. make them do anything. No. So, <laughs> why not do it?
0: <laughs> so, after listening to all of our cool technology conservation, maybe you want to get involved. So, Cheryl's going to tell us so. a little bit
1: about how we can get involved. So how can you delve into this high-tech conservation movement? Uh, It's so simple, it's at your fingertips. Citizen science has many different ways to get involved with conservation technology. There's apps you can put on your phone, like the iNaturalist app. Upload photos that you see while you're out in nature. It tags the photos with uh, long, is that longitude and latitude, and creates a database that researchers can use for many different projects. There's SciStarter, a great website and app that compiles different citizen science projects that you can you can join, that anyone can join. Yeah. And you can sign up to watch a video from Africa and tag what types of animals you can see. You can sign up to read and translate. Wow, this is cool. Translate historical handwritten notes from scientists for the Smithsonian Institute. And you can register bird calls from your back porch with Cornell. Science is literally, like we said earlier, literally at your fingertips. There's um, Team I- eBird, bird mm-hmm. um, where you're making, we talked about that in an earlier podcast. Yeah, our Cornell, yeah. Yeah, where you're doing, um, there's Project Feeder Watch. Again, mm-hmm. there's lots of um, citizen science information um availability for for you us to help scientists collect information
0: absolutely the more
1: information they have the better off they can um, chart courses for conservation and um, we'll all be better off for that so go to it guys
0: yes and that I, we only put two things on here because there's a ton more out there yeah. but starter is a really really great website to start at and kind of pick something that interests you because that's what it has to be it has to be something that interests you And for those of you who may have family members or you yourself are people that kind of stay at home. Maybe you're not as mobile and you do have access to a computer with Internet. This is a great way to do that, Um, especially if there are those of you who are out there who speak uh, a lot of foreign languages. Doing that handwritten notes from the Smithsonian, they're in foreign languages. Some of them are and they We've got to get that translated out of that information to learn things. And then the ones, those of you who love animals and you want to just sit and like watch videos of animals all day, do that for science. Um, They have lots of different programs from all around the world. that, And they want you to look for a specific animal or some of them are like, just tell us what you see. So it's very, very cool. It is cool. Yes. All right. So this is conservation technology, but we're going to do... Uh plant spotlight for this one as well, because we want to get that started again. So the plant spotlight that we're talking about today is me. I get to do it today. And I'm talking about the chocolate flower. Why am I talking about the chocolate flower? Because it's a Stop chocolate flower. Yes.
1: It's <laughs> chocolate please, flower. please. <laughs> Everybody
0: loves chocolate. Well, and those of you who don't love chocolate, that's okay. You're still going to like this plant. Uh, the chocolate flower is a perennial, which those of you who have listened before, I'm a lazy gardener. If it's not going to come back on its own the next year, I don't want to deal with it. So it is a perennial. It is native to the southwestern United States and to northern Mexico. It's actually a fast-growing brush, which I like also. I like Mm -hmm. my stuff to grow fast.
1: Yeah, I want to see it.
0: Yes, come on. I put you in there. Let's go, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So it grows to about one foot to two feet, and that's one foot high, two foot spread. Um, And it can do full or partial shade. So this is a nice plant for almost anywhere in your yard. Once it is established, it's pretty low water. You can just let it um, use the monsoon season rains. And it does like well-draining soil, which is great because that's pretty much what we have here in the desert. Once it blooms, it has a yellow daisy-like flower from spring to fall so it's quite a long blooming season which is wonderful for your garden and then wonderful for wildlife there are no thorns which is also a super big plus and the flowers have a distinctive chocolate scent that's why it's called a chocolate flower I need this yes (laughs) Uh, this one is great for native bees and our local butterflies and then birds eat the seeds in the fall once they uh, turn to seed, you leave that out there, and you'll probably see some lesser goldfinches or house finches uh, eating the seeds. And it's just a great native flower to add a little bit of color to your garden. And it's a very cute one. I know those of you who are close to Boyce Thompson, they do have some chocolate flowers growing out there along the main path when you get to the Wash area where you go past the Queen Creek and then down in their demonstration garden area. So if you want to see what it looks like before you plant it, then check that out. And I know at uh, during the years when they have their plant sale, they often have, often have chocolate flower for sale. So it's a nice one to go visit and then check out your local nurseries. I'm sure there's someone that is uh, selling this chocolate flower as well. So it's kind of, will be a fun one. All right, well, thank you guys so much. And we hope that you were inspired by this conservation technology and I do know for those of you who might be listening who are younger or have children who might be thinking, what do I want to do when I get into college? I know here at ASU, they actually have a program that specifically goes into a conservation technology type program. And it's all based on that learning GIS, learning how to do all the different types of app work and stuff. And it. Uh, folds right into a conservation technology type job
1: i know if, if i had to do it all over again i do bi- um, conservation biology because yeah. that's another subject yes i would all right well thank you guys for listening